Happy Monday, everybody. Hi there. Well, Patty, it's happening. It's under 90. The change, <laughs> the change. is happening. <laughs> the change <laughs> is happening. We thought maybe it was never going to be. We were that we to would think be that. Uh, forever trapped in 100 degree heat. We did. It's kind of like that. So you know, did all of them. <laughs> there's an episode of The Twilight Zone like yes. that, right? It, there is. If you've ever watched it, it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's People a good episode. People trapped in their apartment building and they. they yeah, because it's, it's so, so hot. hot. Right. So, so but so fortunately, hot. we are actually going to have cooler weather and they're. They seem convinced we're going to see rain this week. Oh, uh, it'll be fantastic. Better come to, my, to our house, huh? I'm going to dust out our rain gauge outside so <laughs> that we have it. a good setting. It's a been good through setting. a long, hot, dry it summer. It really has. So, there we go. Of course, we're in Texas, and of course, we're excited about rain. So, anyway, glad that all of you are here today to resume our journey through Mark. I hope you, you know, we missed last Monday because of Labor Day. Right. But, uh, Every weekend at St. Andrew these days is exciting. Stuff going on, stuff going on all over the place really there. Is. It's just 9.30 was, it was full yesterday. It really it was, was packed The balcony was full. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is, and it's still, mm -hmm. and that's not usual for this time of year. Typically, I can't imagine what it's going to be in January. You know, January is the time of year when typically attendance is the highest wow. in worship. Wow. Yeah. So, well, I saw in your class yesterday, some of you I know were in Scott's class or watched it, some of you may not have. But yesterday, he started the introduction to a, a different series. He's taught very similar things, but this is different based on a new book about world religions. And we had over 220 people in person and 70 online watching. That, that was crazy. That yeah. was a lot of people. And that was without even discussing any religion. That's right. It particular. was just the introduction. It was the teaser, <laughs> we like to say. <laughs> and some really tough questions people wanted to talk about. But, but wasn't it great? But, Everybody had so many yeah, it's, questions. Yeah, it's what we're there so, for. It's what I'm there for. No, it's, it's what you're there for. I'm basically there to sit behind you and watch the hands that you can't see. That's which my is job. an important function. But that's important. not just it. You are... You are Patty, I'm there. Patty. You're so Patty true. there. You are okay. bringing the sparkle, bringing the sparkle to Smith Worship Center. Well, okay. We are so glad to be here with you today as we move forward in Mark. We're getting up to. Um... Well, today where we are is we are we they're going to Jesus and his disciples are going to go to Gethsemane. So we're going to go back a few verses and read into it. But some of the really indicated, hard stuff, though. Oh my gosh, this, yes. This is the hard stuff. This is that Passion Week, and yeah. we are getting closer and closer to the the event, the big yeah, event that changed changed the world. So I will I will try to help you get a little deeper into Mark's story than you might have been before. Um, and guys, I, I really mean this. I sometimes type in there, please ask questions. Scott loves it when you ask questions. So please, if you have anything that you want, you're thinking about, that you are curious about, or you just, you, it doesn't even have to be a question, something you just comment on that you feel strongly about something or confused about it lets something. Let me know people Please, are out there. Really, it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> thing when he, he loves, yeah, loves the questions. I do. I do. I'd rather talk about what people want to talk about than what I want to talk about. Right. Thank, okay. Thankfully, it's usually the same stuff. Usually. Yeah. But, I've been doing this a while. Okay, over to you again. Okay, I'll pray. Time. 
Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here on this Monday. It is the change. We are beginning to cool off and rain is coming. It reminds us of the glories of your creation. For you are the Lord Almighty and you created all that is. Everything that there is. Everything that the Hubble telescope and the new telescopes can see. Down to the flowers in our yard and the um, the babies we see every every day in this world and we're just we're just grateful um, to have the opportunity to come together and to study your word all this we pray in jesus's name amen amen susan faulkner that was very sweet she said that i am the vanna white of scott's class <laughs> yeah you've stayed younger than vanna white no oh yeah oh yeah they don't ever do close-ups on vanna anymore oh. No, no. She's a, she's a beautiful lady. She really is. I'm hopping over to the other side. Okay. So, like I said, we are um, at Gethsemane. And so what I want to do is just go back a few verses before the whole passage leading up to Jesus and the disciples at Gethsemane is the Last Supper. Okay? So in the Last Supper, we get obviously the meal and the, and the bread and the cup and the betrayal and we also get some statements from the disciples that are just they're foolish and they betray the fact that the disciples don't really understand where this is going and they don't really understand themselves very well so look back, we'll just read into um, verse 32, but we'll begin back at 27, okay? This is the last piece before Gethsemane. So you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then Jesus goes on, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So typically for Jesus, he takes a path, a verse from Zechariah and weaves around it this, this understanding of what's happening. And Peter then declares, even if everybody falls away, I will not. Then Jesus answers, and I think he looks Peter right in the eyes and he says, truly I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will, dis will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others, every one of them, every last one of them said exactly the same thing. So let's see. Verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane simply means it, it's a place with olive trees and an olive press. That is where it gets the name. Um, let me show you. I brought a few, one quick little map just to show you that Gethsemane is um, located on the eastern side of the city in the Kidron Valley with the city walls on the western slope above Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives on the eastern side. So and Gethsemane is, is nestled down there in that in that valley. 
So these are a few pictures. These are olive trees that are at the Garden of Gethsemane today. They're very, very old and very, very gnarly, but they don't date from Jesus' time. I mean, they're really, really old, but not 2,000 years old. This is another picture of the garden. Um, the Garden of Gethsemane is in two, two plots of land divided by a street. Um, and this is the one with the Church of All Nations uh, uh, in that plot. And then you could cross over the little street and go to a more of a private garden. Some of you have been with Patty and me to Israel. Um, and we, you can go to both sides. Okay, if you're with the right group, you can get into the private, more quiet part. If not, you do only the area around the Church of All Nations. So this is this is just some of the it's a lot of lovely flowers there. That some of some Saint Andrew group from some year I can't say I know which it is. Um, more gnarly trees, I guess. There we go. That's the Church of All Nations that is built in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in it is the Stone of Agony. There's actually, I think, one inside, and there's another stone um, outside the Church of All Nations. So this is the interior of the church. Um, sometimes people are milling in. Lately, it, when we've been there, there have been services going on in there. So you approach it very quietly, and you leave quietly. Um, this is actually a split screen. I don't know if you can tell that. I don't think I meant to do that. Did I show these slides two weeks ago, Patty? I'm not sure. I don't think so. That is really a pretty funny looking slide right there. I know. There. <laughs> I think I have, uh, I think I didn't realize I had two images on the same slide. Well, the top image is an image of... An old plant. The, yes, but that rock is, is, whoa. The kind of rock Jesus prayed on and the southern I mean the bottom one is looking up the Kidron Valley with the stone city wall on the left and then looking down at the Church of All Nations and um, okay so so that is is that that yeah we're back to okay okay yeah. And then this is, so if you, um, if you can conceptualize this, the people there that you see at the bottom of the screen are on the Mount of Olives, looking down on the Temple Mount. And at the bottom there, that's where you would find the um, Garden of Gethsemane. Just, just helps to, I think, uh, kind of place where you are a bit. Um, I'm sure it was a lovely place, and it was a place that people knew about. Uh, all right. So, back to verse 32. They went to a, this is Jesus and his disciples after the supper. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. So remember that you have the di disciple is a kind of a general word of apprentices. And within the larger group of people following Jesus who might call themselves a disciple of Jesus, there are the 12, capital T, 12 disciples. And within the 12, there is a smaller group 
that is, I don't know if I want to say closest to Jesus, but I guess I will. Peter, James, and John. These are the same three that Jesus took with him when he went up to be transfigured um, some chapters ago. And now he's taken these three with him deeper into Gethsemane. And Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled because he knows where this is going. And I read commentaries occasionally and I talk to Christians who have trouble grasping this because they say, well, he's God and doesn't he know, doesn't he know how it's all going to turn out and what's he worried about and why is he distressed and all that robs him of his humanity. He is fully God, but he is also fully human. And he understands what the Roman punishment is for those who are lifted up as rebel kings. And Messiah is a king idea. It means the anointed one. David was anointed. We're just reading about David now in my Tuesday class because we're doing 2 Samuel. And so no sane person would want to undergo crucifixion. Every sane person would be deeply distressed and troubled by that. And in addition, Jesus is deeply in distress by the nature of his vocation, which is to take the sins of Israel and the world upon himself. But those don't have to be separated. They can be held together. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. This is a very, very hard thing that Jesus is going to do. In our lives, a lot of people turn away from hard things. They just want to hit the easy button. They take what seems to be an easy path forward. Um, I'm married to a woman who is good at making herself do hard things. She may not want to. She'll tell you she doesn't, but she can make herself do it. A lot of people are not like that. Could you and I make, if we knew there was an escape, could we make ourselves go forward with this as Jesus will. I don't know. Could I? I don't know. I, I, I tend to doubt it. It's such an easy escape because from the Garden of Gethsemane, all you would have to do is go up the Mount of Olives, that slope. It's not going to take you long to get to the top of the slope. Nothing in there is very tall. I mean, you go up to the top of the slope, you go down the backside, and you're in the Judean wilderness, which is like going to the moon. You could hide there forever. David did hide from Saul <laughs> in that type of wilderness, you know, and 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 Saul never found him. Uh, so it is, it is, we, we have to let this be a very serious, sorrowful, distressing, troubling time for Jesus. I think otherwise we just cheapen it. We cheapen his suffering. You know, there are a lot of places in the Bible where people 
suffer. There's lots of times in our lives when we suffer, our friends suffer, our loved ones suffer, the world suffers, and we wonder where God is in this. Well, you always have to come to that remembering that God entered into our suffering. God entered into our suffering. He gave his only begotten son up to a Roman cross. And Jesus submitted. He obeyed and went forward. So God, uh, the, the line from Isaiah is that he is acquainted with our griefs. That's who Jesus is. That's who God is. So I have some excellent volumes from uh, On the Suffering of God by Terence Freitheim. Um, one in particular, and this this is who we worship. Love brings great joy, but love can also bring great sorrow. In a broken world, that's just the truth. So Jesus is overwhelmed. He leaves Peter, James, and John. Jesus goes on further now. Stay here and keep watch. That's all he says. Just stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Because you see, now his hour has come, which is a wonderful way, an artful way of saying that that this will now be the time that Jesus' vocation comes to its fulfillment, its <coughs> climax. In the Gospel of John, that's a very common phrase. Jesus says, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. It, that's not used as much in Mark, but it's still the same idea that you're awaiting, you're awaiting the time when... The, when, when the time is right and the time is fulfilled and um, it is now that time. You might ask me, what makes it that time? Well, I'm not sure, but certainly it has to be because, in part because it's Passover. It wasn't Passover the last, a week ago, from where Jesus is here in this, and it won't be Passover a week later. It is now Passover. And Jesus is that Passover lamb who will be sacrificed, whose body will be broken, whose blood will be shed. And that hour, that hour has come. And of course he wants another way forward. If possible, the hour might pass from him. He would be foolish not to want another path forward. Nobody would want a path that led to a Roman cross. It was, it was horrible, humiliating, in a culture built upon gathering honor and avoiding shame. They crucified people naked. Why? Because it was more shameful. 
They did it all in public. Why? Because it would scare other people. Everybody would get to see the shame on the person up there on that cross, which wasn't very far off the ground. They didn't crucify people way up in the air. That's That would be too hard, too distant. They, the, the crosses were not way up there. They were close to the ground. So everybody could see and hear and smell. And nobody would want to go through that. And Jesus doesn't. He wants another path. Of course he does. Don't take that away from him. Don't let anybody convince you otherwise. He says, 36, Abba, Father, he said. Abba, Father. He cries out to God. He cries out. You know, Father, we get a little bit off track here because we are Trinitarians. We are post all this. We understand that God is one Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father for Second Temple Jews, of which Jesus is one because he's the Jew living during the time of the Second Temple, the temple that was built after Solomon's was destroyed. Father is a way that they spoke of God. Right? Now it's, it's another much more personal thing, of course, for Jesus because he is God. And he knows the Father loves him. And he loves the Father. So with Jesus, you find yourself, you, you somehow have to hold all of that together. Now, one thing I've often mistaught over the years and is that Abba was a real personalized way of speaking about Father. As if Jesus said here, Papa, Father. But that's not really right. I kind of wish it was, but it really isn't. And I understand why it you know, becomes something that a lot of people believe and talk about because it seems so perfect. But Abba is really just Father in Aramaic. So it isn't like you have two words here. You know, Papa or Daddy and then Father. You have Aramaic, and then you have Greek. Abba, Father. Just two different languages. It is the nature of the Trinity that helps us to grasp the personal nature of this. So that when Paul, much later, says, we can come to God as Abba, Aramaic, Father, as in Greek, he's calling this up. The personal nature of this, intensely personal nature of this. And um, in Jesus's address here, his plea, this is really a plea. Our prayers are often pleas, right? Uh -huh. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you, which Jesus has said several times. I mean, you know, move mountains, all that stuff. Everything is possible for you. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. If you want to put a please in there and a pleading, fine. He wants another way. Take this cup from me. Please. Anything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. 
Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is on the path of a vocation given him by God to do and be for Israel what they were unwilling to do and be for themselves. And that path is a path that leads to a Roman cross. And God's will for Jesus is that he will be obedient. He will be faithful to that vocation. That he will love God every day, every way, love others as himself, and not prove faithless, but remain faithful and accept the consequences of that utter faithfulness when it is confronted by the powers of darkness, wrong, and, and evil. And so Paul writes in Philippians of Jesus, he was humble and, quote, he was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was obedient. It's God's will for us, God's desire for us, God's moral will for us that we will be obedient because God is good. God is love. So we, we should have enough sense to be obedient. And Jesus will be obedient. He will not escape. He will not run out the backside. He will surrender himself to God's redemptive purposes. Going all the way back to that promise made to Abraham that God, all the families will be blessed through you, Abraham, coming all the way forward through all of the hopes and dashed hopes and brokenness in the Old Testament, the covenant at Mount Sinai where the people say, yes, 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 we're ready. And God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And yet they won't do it. They won't do it. They won't do it. And so God's a, God provides one faithful Jew who is Jesus, who will be faithful in every measure, large and small, and will not abandon his vocation, will not abandon this covenant. No matter how much he wants it, please take this from me, he says. You can, you can do anything, but it's, it's your will, not mine. Jesus knows what he is part of here. He knows what's coming to fruition in and through him. He will do and be for Israel what they are unable, unwilling to do and be for themselves. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will, but what you will. Then he returned to the disciples. This would be Peter, James, and John. They're the nearest by him and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? That's like incredulous, right? Are you in asleep? 
couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Like, that's all I asked of you. Don't you understand what's happening, Peter? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You're going to need to be strong, Peter. I've heard you. I've heard you tell me this, that. But you're going to have to be stronger. And here you can't even stay awake. While I'm over there praying in agony about what I don't want to do, but I will do. Because I think that's the gist of Jesus. He doesn't want to do this, but he will do it. He will surrender himself to God's purposes. He will submit himself to that. That's his vocation. Okay. So, once more he went away and he prayed the same thing. Of course, it was the same thing. What else could it be? When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't even know what to say to him this time. How embarrassed they must be. How much shame must must they feel at this? Perhaps it's beginning to dawn on them what lies ahead. I I don't know. But they're just at a loss for words. They don't even know what to say. They don't defend themselves and nothing. They don't know what to say. Returning the third time. So he goes three times. Ah, there's three. Remember he told Peter, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Well, we're not there yet, but here we have a three. So in, in these gospel accounts of the of this day this night and the next day you have to and even after you have to look for the three so here's the three three times jesus goes away to pray each time he comes back they have fallen asleep returning the verse 41 returning the third time he said to them are you still sleeping and resting enough The hour has come. Look. Look. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. So, down in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can look upward and see the city walls. So I brought a slide. It's kind of a very curious slide. It will surprise you because there is snow on the ground in Jerusalem when this picture was taken. You might think it never snows in Jerusalem, but it occasionally does. So this is, I photo was not exactly taken from the garden. It was a little bit further up the wall, I mean up the Kidron Valley, but it's the same idea. You look up, to the wall and Jesus could see the arresting party leaving the city gates up there and coming down the slope with their torches on because it's night right so they have torches coming down at night and he knows what they're, who they're coming for 
and he knows who's leading them. He told them it. Yeah, it did. Right? Yeah. That it would be Judas. That's what he said at the Last Supper. So I'll, I'll point something out that a lot of people don't realize is the walls that you see in Jerusalem today, they are not from Jesus' time. Those are crusader walls. That's why they're kind of like so perfect. And they're crusader walls, so they're from a later time. But the walls are, based, are in the same place as the, as the walls were in Jesus' time. And, and the slope, we didn't have all this stuff built up in front of it, but it's still, you come down the slope and you could get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Next time I'm there, I'll have to remember to take a picture looking from that slope upward. Now I may have one, but I couldn't find it when I was pulling this together. So Jesus says, enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Here comes the arresting party. It's nighttime. They got the torches. Jesus knows, of course, who they are coming for. It's no surprise. Does he run? No. He still could run. But he doesn't. He waits for them to get there. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now this is, you know, it's the translators make it sound a little bit like it's some kind of impromptu mob. It's not an impromptu mob. The, at this time, the chief priests and, and the, the, the uppity-ups in Jerusalem, they had guards and soldiers and so forth at their disposal because they were basically running a city. Rome wasn't interested in running the city. They just wanted the peace kept and the taxes collected. So, so there's more organization here than I think we sometimes would think when we see a word like crowd. I should have looked up what the word is in the NRSV, but it's a bit more organization than we might think. And it they're sent from whom? The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, all of the all of the opponents of Jesus, all of the all of the elites, all of the the, the, the fancy folk, all the ones who've been opposing him, the ones who don't want any world turned upside down because they're basically on top of the world. And they're being led there by Judas, one of the twelve. So, any thoughts or questions at this point? Anything? I'll get a In drink of water. In the they do call it a crowd also. Okay. Exact word. Well, it's a crowd. All right. Okay, well, it's funny what the message says. No sooner were the swords out of his mouth, words out of his mouth, when Judas, the one out of the twelve, showed up, and with him was a bunch of thugs <laughs> sent by the high priest, religion <laughs> scholars, and leaders, brandishing yeah. swords and clubs. Thugs. Right. But they're all, they're all sent there by the leaders in Jerusalem. Okay, so verse 44. Now, the betrayer, notice Judas doesn't get a name now. He's just the betrayer. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. 
Quote, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Now, a kiss like this, of you know, within a, like a family would not be unusual. And of course, Jesus has said his disciples are his family, his brothers and sisters and so forth. But Judas does have to identify him because, I mean, nobody's got photographs or anything. Just imagine you lived in a world where nobody... Nobody was sure what anybody looked like unless they met him. And nobody was entirely sure about every detail of their own appearance because they might have polished metal or something like that, but they don't have mirrors like we have them. Scott, Mon yes. Mona is asking, what is the timeline for Jesus selling, uh, sorry, for Judas selling out Jesus? Okay, so the timeline is that Judas had already been to the temple priest. I have to kind of pull the Gospels a little bit together here and made this arrangement. And we know from elsewhere that it was 30 shekels, 30 pieces of silver. And um, then he goes to the supper and then he goes and gets them. Jesus goes to Gethsemane. He goes to the priest and said, you know, I know where he is, it's time time. He's down at Gethsemane, good place to go get him. Why is Gethsemane a good place to get him? Could there be no crowds? Yeah. The See, it's and... not inside the city and everything. Yeah. So it's outside the city walls. It's down in this valley. It's at this wine, you know, wine olive press place. Yeah. And so he, you can just picture Judas walking up to Jesus there. You know, Jesus' disciples are behind him. And this crowd, the what do you call them? The thugs? Thugs, <laughs> The yeah. thugs um, and the temple guards and stuff that are there. Um, they are behind uh, Judas. And Judas goes up and he kisses Jesus on the cheek. It just seems such an awful way. It's so personal to kiss somebody, first of all, right? And yeah. then be that the way that you betray Oh, it's just pretty awful. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi! Mm. Uh, one last slap and kissed him. The men then seized Jesus and they arrested him. What they came for. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now that's all that Mark tells us. We, you know, John reports to us that the person is actually Peter who does this. But there's no mention of that here. Why not? Is Peter... Does Mark not know it? Was, was, did he just, maybe, maybe he left it out, you know, to protect his companion, Peter. But there's other pieces here you'd think he would have left out, so I don't know. But all we get here is then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And Jesus then says, am I leading a rebellion? 
Well, that's going to that's gonna be what gets him crucified, is this claim that he's leading a rebellion. That's what the Romans care about. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple court, and yet you did not arrest me. And why didn't they arrest him up there when he was in the temple courts making a matter and matter and angrier and angry on Tuesday? Remember? Who are they who who are the uppity ups afraid of? Romans. No, they're afraid no. of the people. Oh well I I know the Romans don't want any kind of disturbance. That's either, right. So. And so the and and the the leaders, you know, every no matter how much power you have, you still have to worry about the populace because there's so many of them. Um, and it is, it is, it's the people. It's, it's they, they, they were afraid of the crowds on Tuesday. They knew that they wanted to get rid of him, but they didn't feel like it was safe. So they come at night to do it, and they go to Gethsemane to do it. And they're led there by this betrayer, one of the 12 closest men to Jesus. And that's why they didn't do it. But Jesus calls them on it. You had the opportunity. Why do you sneak down here, you thugs, with your torches and your swords and your clubs? But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Now that is not a reference to a particular piece of scripture. That is, Jesus often does to talk about how what is happening is the fulfillment of what God had promised. Because God had promised that one day, the day of the Lord would arrive. And that is what's happening. Remember the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repeat, repent, and believe in the good news. That's still, that, that's what's happening here. Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God, which will be most publicly revealed in resurrection, his resurrection, the first of many. We're still waiting for the many, but the first of many, Paul would write. Okay? The scriptures must be fulfilled. That's where we are is where all this has been coming. Look at verse 50, though. Oh, then everyone, all of them, every last stinking one of them deserted him and fled. So he turns around and his disciples have all melted into the darkness. And interestingly, Mark gives us one picture of this, I guess. Verse 51, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, 
He fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, there's some symbolism in that, I think. Um, this comment about him fleeing naked, bring, leaving his garment behind, I, 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 I'm, I assume it happened. It says it here. I, I'll take Mark, Mark at his word here that he that he's been told this by Peter. Um, unless maybe John Mark is in the crowd. Right? He will go on to be a companion of Peter's, so just to, no reason that he couldn't have been in the crowd that day um, out there. But for me, this is the... It's just like this embodies the desertion and the embarrassment and the shame. He fled naked. Remember what happens when Adam and Eve you know, eat of the fruit, and they realize they're naked. What's the, what's the, what, they're ashamed, right? They want to start, they realize they're naked, and so, it's just kind of a, quite a pick, an image, this young guy, all he's got on is like a big long tunic or robe or something, and when they seized him, I guess they grabbed hold of his robe, but he sneaked out and ran off naked. Stark naked. No, and Lynn points out there's nothing in there about the healing of the ear. Nothing of that. That's all in the other Gospels. I think th I, I think none of that... I mean, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. So it's sparsely written. And if Mark knew about the healing of the ear he still might have just left it out because he wanted to get on to what Jesus said here. I don't know. But a good observation. And and I think it's John, isn't it, that we're told even the name of the servant, Malthus. And we're told that it's Peter. So more is made of it. But now they have Jesus. And all the, dis you know, it's verse 50 is the one to keep focused on right here. They all deserted him, and they all fled. So go back up to verse 31. Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others, all of them, every last one of them, said the same thing. And now you go back down here to verse 50, and well... Everyone deserted him. Every last stinking one of them deserted him and fled into the darkness. And now Jesus is alone in the hands of those who want him dead. That's just how it is. You know, we, we're about to, to begin calling this sometimes Jesus' trial, but it isn't really a trial. Not in the sense that you and I know what the a trial is supposed to be, at least in a you know American justice or even Roman justice. They want rid of him. They want rid of him, and so the Sanhedrin um, is going to gather at at night. Whoever can come, they're going to break some of their own rules about 
what they can and can't do and what Sanhedrin has to do to be a formal meeting, none of that matters. All they want to do is have some kind of hearing, gather some kind of something, evidence, something, so that they can take Jesus to the Romans and get him executed because they don't have the power. Only the Romans have the power of capital punishment. The temple priests do not have that. The chief priest does not have that. So don't view this, don't, don't come to this thinking this is some sort of trial and examination for the truth. That's not what it is. I guess it's closer to what we might call what? A kangaroo court or something like that? It's just a hearing in the middle of the night to come up with some way to bind him over and send him to Pilate. And there's actually, as we'll see, there's actually going to be two trials. I, I, I'll use the word trial. There's going to be the trial of Jesus, and then there's going to be the trial of Peter. Right? Peter's going to be tested. Peter's going to be tested. Um, and examined. And he's going to testify to certain things. And they're going to be witnesses. All circling around Peter. Not just Jesus. So it's an interesting um, thought. That there is this, this trial or this hearing for Jesus. And alongside it there's Peter's. So. Any thoughts or questions? All right. Lynn had mentioned they don't say the ear is healed. Uh-huh. And I think the only way, only place that it says that his ear was healed by Jesus is in the Gospel of Luke. Okay. It says that Jesus um, Jesus touched the man's ear and healed him. And uh, Lynn, that's Luke 22, verse 50 and 51. But it definitely doesn't mention it in the other Gospels. Because, you know, they're not, none of them are newspaper accounts, right? None of them are newspaper accounts. None of them are, these are not journalists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and they, they have this true story to tell, but they select which elements to include from whatever they know, whatever sources they have, whatever they know from their own experience, or whatever they have gathered, um, but they have their own theological reasons to write as they did. And that's really why all four were preserved. And, and not, they, nobody ever, to my knowledge, nobody ever tried to smash them all together. We do that now, and I guess really a long time ago, people tried to start trying to harmonize the Gospels. I have some re references here, which kind of lay them out side by side and try to make them map, you know, fill in all the stories so you can get one telling. But it, that's all kind of, I don't know, it's kind of like saying, well, God, why didn't you give us that? Why do I have these four separate Gospels, these four separate portraits of Jesus? And we have these four separate portraits of Jesus, each with their own theological points to make, telling it the way they want to tell it, um, based upon what each of them know and can find out. And God said, here, this is what you ought to have. 
these four. So, yep. All right. So now Mark tells us, and remember, I'm definitely with Richard Bauckham on this, that what we have in Mark is, it, the foundation of it is Peter's eyewitness testimony. Now there are other things, sure, but John Mark has written down a, a gospel that is built upon a foundation of Peter's eyewitness testimony. So verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law, the ones who sent the crowd out, came together. Peter followed Jesus at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Um, the way these houses were built, there would be the interior but they would have typically have a nice courtyard outside the home to take advantage of, you know, the weather there is often, is, is usually, you know, pretty nice. And so Peter goes as far as this courtyard. And I've, I've often wondered, like, can Peter in the courtyard see Jesus inside? Can he hear Jesus inside? Can Jesus see Peter? Can Jesus hear Peter? There's, there's a house in Jerusalem that is Caiaphas's house, um, which is, I guess, in theory, pretty good theory, <laughs> that this happened. But you can't really know where the people are. Right? We're not given that, that level of detail. Nobody drew us a map or anything here. We just know that Jesus is taken inside and Peter's going to sit in the courtyard. It is April. It's going to be a little chilly. Um, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So there's a fire built in the courtyard so everybody can stay warm and he's just going to sit there with the guards and he, as far as they're concerned, he's just this dude, this unknown guy who shows up and he's sitting down at the courtyard on this very eventful night because it's certainly not every night, every early morning that they are arresting and bringing to the house of the high priest someone like Jesus or anyone for that matter. So, verse 55, the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin Obviously, it's whoever they could muster, but yes. We're looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. So in that verse, Mark tells you what the purpose of this is. It's not a careful weighing of the truth. They want to find evidence so that they can bind him over to Pilate. If they have to make it up, they will. They don't care. They want rid of him now. So, verse 56, many testified falsely against him. But their statements did not agree. So, the chief priests and the rest of them, I mean, they put up, they arrange for false testimony, but they do it in a sloppy way, basically, right? Isn't that right, Patty? Yes. They're sloppy about it, because the statements don't agree. Well, well you got to get your story straight. Got to right? get your, they, you know, they didn't, 
I don't know, maybe they didn't feel they had any time to plan this out to go to Mona's question. They hadn't thought through this week. How would they actually do this? And who would put up testimony to make sure that the statements agree and all the rest of it? So it's all a big put-up job anyway. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against Jesus. Ah, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands, which is a reference to what? He did say stuff like that, yes. actually, right? Because the temple, he's talking about the coming destruction of the temple. That was in Mark 13. And he's talking about his resurrection. Or the church that will be built. Not a structure, but Pentecost. Right? So, I mean, we... And verse 58 is basically, yeah, he kind of does. Yet even 59, even there, their testimony didn't agree. So these people really don't have their act together very much, given what they are trying to accomplish. But it doesn't matter because they have the power to do what they want. And they've expended, I think, more energy on trying to lie about Jesus and make statements about Jesus than they need to. Because watch, or listen. <laughs> then the high priest stood up before them and he asked Jesus, aren't you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Remember in Isaiah chapter 51, like a sheep led to slaughter, did not open his mouth. His response to them to this point is simply to stay silent, not to defend himself against these, that's his false testimony. It doesn't matter. Jesus is a smart guy. There's no defense he's gonna muster here. A clever lawyer's not gonna do him any good. A clever Jesus isn't going to do him any good. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? That is, that is simply a straightforward question. Are you the Messiah? There's no, nothing in here about Jesus' divinity. The Son of the Blessed One is a way to speak of the Messiah. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And then Jesus says, I am. You're not going to get more straightforward than that. You are not going to get more plain spoken than that. He simply says, I am. Ego eimi in the Greek. What's fascinating is, in John's Gospel, there are seven ego eimi, I am statements. in which Jesus claims his divinity. Is that what's behind this? Should they see this when he says, I am? Should they be connecting this to the very name of God revealed to Moses I at think the burning so. bush? You think so? I think so. 
to the Jewish... I kind of think yes, they should, but the I don't know priests, that they do. They know what he's saying. I well, kind of wonder. But it is just the words, I am. It's a, it is the same response you or I would make. Ego e me is, is simply, I am. I am, said Jesus. And then he doesn't stop there, though. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man, Daniel 7, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, this is messianic, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay? Now, you can... There are a lot of people, some of whom surprise me, do not pay enough attention to the directionality on this. In Daniel 7, it says the Son of Man appeared and was then coming before the throne of God. So what's the direction of that toward toward Jerusalem or toward the throne of God in Daniel 7? Well, it's toward the throne of God. The directionality matters. It just has to. So, so this isn't a statement about, I don't know, Jesus coming, we're going to look up and see a cold front coming through and Jesus riding on the clouds. It is a firm statement about his exaltation which is what his ascension is as well, his exaltation. He is the Messiah. And he takes and he takes this Daniel 7 and a bit from Psalm 110 and weaves them together, preceded by the clear statement, I am, and nobody could doubt, based upon what we have here, what Jesus is saying, that he is the Messiah. The interesting thing is then, is the priest stands up and tears his clothes and says, why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Now, is it really blasphemy? I mean, blasphemy is to deny, is basically to deny God, to speak against God. But the Messiah is not a God idea for these people. The Messiah is a human to be lifted up by God, to kick out the Romans and cleanse the temple from the line of David, which is all very human. So it's one thing to say Jesus is Messiah. It's another thing to say that he is God. For you, you and I know that the two are one, but for these people, those are two completely separate categories. So what gives? Is it blasphemy? Has Jesus sufficiently taken upon himself the prerogatives of God that what he says here about being the Messiah extends beyond Messiahship into the divine realm of prerogatives? In which case, if it's not true, if he's not right about himself, then it is blasphemy. In any event, I know exactly what's going on. This is enough. This is enough 
for the priest to stand up, tear his clothes, cry out blasphemy, cry out whatever he wants. He believes that he has enough to, to bind Jesus over to the, um, to the Romans. And isn't it interesting, humbling is a better word, to see that Jesus himself gives a straightforward answer to the question that gets him condemned. What might have happened if he had never answered a question? Were there some souls on the Sanhedrin like Nicodemus who would not have stood for the condemnation of Jesus if he had remained silent? I don't know. We know Nicodemus probably would. He's already offended Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, right? Probably Joseph of Arimathea. There might have been others. But now with these words, you know, not in Mark's gospel, gospel, but in John's gospel, there's just this moment where Jesus is in the streets and the people are picking up stones, ready to stone him. And he says, what are you doing? Are you, are, do you want to stone me for my good works? And this one guy, just a guy, steps forward and says, we're not stoning you because, we don't want to stone you because of good works, but because you have made yourself out to be God. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, that's a person who, who got it. And I guess Caiaphas. Caiaphas gets it. You know, I can't peer inside Caiaphas's mind. I don't know whether he has just no interest in Jesus, he doesn't believe him at all, or if he simply wants rid of him, period, paragraph, and is going through with it all, despite being confronted by Jesus himself. Well, since he is the high priest... You would, I mean, he is then the, the main one that Jesus is directing all his criticism about the what's happened to the priesthood, isn't he? I yes, mean, he, he is. He's yes, charge, he is. So he's the one who was allowed all this, Very, all this yes. terrible activity to go on. And They've um, made the, the, the priest, the office of the high priest be, has become a big gold mine. Right, that's, and the people know it. That's why you know N.T. Wright says, "Okay, job description for the Messiah: two pieces: kick out the Romans and cleanse the temple of the corrupt priesthood. They're corrupt. They've enriched themselves." And he's the top dog. And he's the top dog. He's the top dog. Yep. So, yeah. But now he has what he wants. All of those who have been opposing Jesus, those who had said earlier in the week, well, we got to get rid of him. We're scared of the crowds, but we got to get rid of him. He's got to go. He's got to go. He's got to go. Now they have what they think they need, and it proves to be the case, doesn't it? They all condemned him as worthy of death. The second half of verse 64. Then some began to spit at him. That's the. This is the humiliation. That's beginning. You know, you and I don't live in a culture driven by gathering honor to yourself and avoiding shame. 
We have other drives. We do want to be honored. We don't want to be shamed, but it isn't the currency of life. In, these, in this culture and others around it, gathering honor and avoiding shame, that was the currency of life. You build a gymnasium uh, because you want to be, bring honor to your family. You banish your pregnant daughter, or worse, because she's going to bring shame on your family. It's where honor killings come from. They come, they come from this kind of culture. So here's the humiliation. What Jesus is going to endure is going to be painful and terrible, but the humiliation is as bad. Read Philippians chapter 2 again. Paul lifts up Jesus' humiliation alongside his obedience. They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. So they're mocking him now. They're mocking him now. And the guards took him and they beat him. And so it begins. Meanwhile, as all this is happening, Peter is sitting outside, warming himself by the fire. But he is going to have his own test or his own trial while Jesus is being tried inside. So when we come together next week, we we will we will see how Peter does. I have a question I'd like to know your opinion on. Why do you think they blindfolded him before they struck him? I wouldn't see this as an just a, a neat ordering of what they do to him. If I were writing it, I wouldn't I wouldn't feel compelled to try to get things like that in the right order. It's chaotic. They're beating him. They're spitting at him. They blindfold him. They blindfold him. Why? Because it's more terrifying. It's worse okay. when you can't see what's coming. Now, I could weave a tale that says, well, they want to blindfold him because they don't want to have to look into his eyes because they really know the truth of what they're doing. But there's no evidence for that. There's, I mean, there's not, nothing to go on here for that um, but you know could be I think it I think it just heightens they see they don't they, they can't they can't actually execute him they don't have the power to do that so but they're going to beat him and humiliate him and blindfold him and do what they can to terrorize him and hurt him before taking him over to see Pilate. Susan, um, just as we're leaving, I'm making my way over. It's so difficult to understand the people's behavior after they were celebrating Jesus just, you know, a few yeah. days before. Yeah. And of course, this, we, we really haven't still gotten to the people part yet. This is still the Sanhedrin and all their little allies and buddies and everything, all sort of part of that club. And the, the soldiers and the thugs, I guess, work for them. But when what's going to happen when 
the crowds are offered Jesus or Barabbas. It just, we'll talk about that when we get there, Susan, because I do have some thoughts on, on that, mainly driven by human nature. So my experience with human nature. So anyway, that's it. We I will don't. pick up there, there next Monday. A lot going on there. Yeah, it kind of, kind of, kind of makes you, kind of brings you up short, and it, it does. You know, we we in church we never we should never get too far from this. You know, you can't as humans we can't walk through this every day. It's too horrifying, but at the same time, you can't put it away and pull it out once a year. That's the shame of of so many churches and Christians who want to go from Palm Sunday directly to Easter. Mm -hmm. Palm Sunday's triumphal, Easter is triumphal, and they, they don't want to do Monday, Thursday. They don't want to do Good Friday. They don't, they just want to go triumph to triumph. It's not, it's not right, it's not good, it's not healthy, it's not, it's not Christian. So, in my humble opinion, I am H-O. I know, I know you are, and I know you have, uh, I think you've really helped spread the word around St. Andrew in the last 20 years, how important that week is to attend church. And those were two pretty small services at one time, but they, and they've grown and grown and grown and grown. Oh, good thing. Would you pray I'm sure for I'm. us? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much on this day, on this day, God, when we remember September 11th and what happened right here in our country. 20 plus years ago. Help us, Lord, to never, ever forget what happened and those that have fought to preserve our freedoms. We pray, dear Lord, that you would watch over the families that were affected that day, just literally thousands of people who lost, lost people that they loved, that they cared for, that they worked with. And I think it's always good, Lord, to just remember and never let us just take a pass on this day. It's something that needs to be remembered. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to get to be together on September 11th. And Lord, to, um, you know, we're, we're building up to the end of this story, Jesus's life here on earth, where we know that there is an answer. There is an answer. There is hope for all of us. And while others may want to tell us that, that that's not the case, we who have hope in the living Christ, we know that there is hope, Lord, every day, every day. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you'll bring us back together next week safely. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Adios. Bye, everybody. See you maybe tomorrow. Yeah. Second back Samuel. To, back to David. Be David, Bathsheba, Sheba, and yes. all that stuff. The aftermath. The aftermath. Which is oh, ugly. The murder of Uriah. Ugly. The aftermath. Ugly. Yes. Okay. Bye, Adios, everybody. Love you guys. Bye. I can't. Oops. Where are we? Oh, yeah. <laughs>